Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan Scraggins. Scoggins. Scoggin is the correct way to say my last name. Scoggin. 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 There's no Scroggins or Scoggins or Scraggin or... But everybody gets it wrong. I'm, I'm here with... Skiles. Skiles. Yep. That's a good one. <laughs> What's your last name? I mean, you know. Hamilton. Are you related to Mr. Alexander? You know, I don't think so. Oh. I don't think so. Mm. But the Hamilton side is pretty chaotic, according mm. to my grandmother. Yeah. So she yeah. couldn't get it back to Europe. Yeah. Lots of infidelity. Yeah. I was actually looking at like some of my, you know, former family life. And uh, we we go back to like early, early Western settling of the colonies. Like, mm-hmm. like on all my sides of the family, we were like 1600s people. Yeah. That's surprising to me. Yeah. Because I thought, for some reason, I had the impression that we were, you know, in Ireland or something <laughs> for a while before. But yeah, no, we, we were like early on. My so. family fought for George Washington, mm-hmm. the American Revolution. Well, Hamilton seems like you should. Yeah. Seems right. Yeah. So it, and get this it's um the one of the main battles they fought in. The Battle of Utah Bridge. Mm. But it's E U T A W. There you go. How about that? Yeah. That's pretty sweet. That's pretty interesting. Pretty sweet. Um got a question for you. Okay. You know. Just something that I've been dying to know. I, I believe um, knowing you. <laughs> if you could be fluent in another language, which one would you choose? Hebrew. Hebrew? Like Old Testament Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I wish I could sight read it. You love that OT. Oh, that'd be so great. Huh. Wouldn't it be? Yeah. It's tough yeah, stuff. That's, that's good. At least for me. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, man. Could be fluent in any language. Probably for practical purposes, it would be Spanish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know I I grew up in Texas and I didn't learn Spanish, and you know like over fifty percent of the population is Hispanic. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. I took Latin in high school, which you Latin's know so useful though. Don't well, you think? it would have been, but I I wasn't a Christian and kind of didn't take it cheated seriously. the whole way through. So. Yeah, well, I was a I was an awful student in high school. That was one of the, like one of the evidences of God's spirit at work in me is I got convicted and started taking school seriously. <laughs> I was like, wait, I can't yeah. cheat. Like that's not okay. When the listeners weren't there, you know, as we were supposed to be prepping for this, we were talking about bobbing for an hour. So yeah, things have changed. Yeah. Oh my goodness, read some bobbing. Bobbing, Herman Bobbing. He will stimulate your <laughs> brain cells. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, short and sweet yeah. on the question today. No yeah. stories or anything. No story time. I mean, I don't have any weird stories, so let's get into it. Today we're going to be talking through uh, the Come Follow Me um, LDS Sunday School curriculum for February 6th to the 12th, 2023. Again, you don't need to be in that week. You can track along with it just fine if you're listening at a different point in time, but we're going to be looking at John 2, 2, 4. 
which uh, you know you always got to love some John. John yes. is just he's just good stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all good stuff. Let's yeah. you know, let's be clear here. But uh, the title of this lesson is "Ye Must Be Born Again." So um, I'll walk us through that here in just a little bit. But we want to start doing something new here, and uh, you know, just just an idea that both of us have had in some different ways, but. We are identifying ourselves as credal Christians, which is probably new. I mean, I don't know. Have you heard that before? Is that a phrase that you've heard used? Not enough. I feel like it just happened in the coffee shop. Yeah, it, it did. When we were planning for this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, we, we used it. I mean, we mean that somewhat synonymously with terms like evangelical Christian and things like that. But we think it's a helpful way to identify ourselves out here to say that we are credo Christians, that our faith is rooted ultimately in the scriptures, but in the scriptures that have been interpreted interpreted historically mm-hmm. by Christians uh, seeking to remain faithful to what Paul calls the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And uh, we want to make sure we're grasping onto that true word of truth, the gospel of salvation, the message that has been passed down, um, that's, that you know, here's who God is and here's what he's done. And so we want to start uh, the podcast really with just reading a portion of different uh, confessions of the faith, different creeds and things of that nature. And we're going to be bouncing around. We'll be in different creeds at different points in time. And uh, just want you to get a little taste of the sorts of creeds and confessions that we hold dear. And of course, these are really um, just statements of truth that are rooted in the in the teaching of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's a way of articulating what the Bible teaches. It's not man's ideas. It's not innovation. It's not anything of that nature. It's just faithful Christians trying to rightly articulate what the Bible teaches. So here, this this uh, in this podcast, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith of God and of the Holy Trinity, Chapter Two. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the whole fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest, His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, 
and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every, and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. It's good to read those so and reflect on those um, regularly as a believer and to hear the ways that faithful Christians have have articulated the teaching of the Bible throughout the centuries. We're going to be in John 2, which is going to hit right at a lot of that particular uh, creed, that uh, that confession that we just now read on what we would say as credo Christians is a right view of God. And so let me walk through our LDS curriculum here just quickly. John 2 to 4. We have the uh, first section, which of course is again invite sharing, not much to say there. Then you get to the teach the doctrine, and it first encourages us to read and reflect on John 2, 1 to 11, which the subtitle is, this teaches us about Jesus Christ's miracles manifested forth his glory. Now, just so you're aware, that is the story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns uh, water into wine. So we are going to talk a good bit on that here today and what we believe the right understanding of that passage is. And then also we're going to look even outside of what is in the LDS curriculum to see how that passage has been used to make particular arguments in defense of LDS thinking or Mormon thinking over the years. And that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Um, Just a hint there on where that's going. Uh, LDS uh, teachers have taught that this was Jesus's wedding Mm -hmm. and that this is where he got married. And so we will break that down and Skylar will have all sorts of goodies for us on that. And then we will discuss kind of how we would react to that way of thinking as creative Christians. So that's the first section here, and then the second section is John 2, 13 to 22, which is the story of Jesus going in and cleansing the temple. And, uh, and so the subtitle here, which, you know, again, we see this pattern of rather than focusing on what Jesus is doing, turning immediately to the application, and the subtitle that we see in the book is We Can Defend Sacred Places and Things. Um, so that's, you know, what we're supposed to realize. And then, um, also there says, you might, you might ask the people in the class to think of other things in addition to temples that the Lord considers sacred. So how can we keep the sacred temple or the the temple sacred? And then what are other things that the Lord considers sacred? So, uh, we may touch on some of the temple theology that's going on there. And, uh, that is something that is very much reinforced in the, um, individual and family manual uh as well so we'll yeah perhaps cover that and talk about that some okay the next section is on john 3 1 to 21 which you'll know as the conversation that jesus has with nicodemus where the uh, oh so famous verse for god so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life uh, where that verse is found. And the subtitle here is, We Must Be Born Again to Enter the Kingdom of God. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but, but, what do you mean? 
by that? What, do you, what does it mean to be born again? And uh, what, what, what's being taught there? So, yeah, there's one line, there's one question here that's actually given in, in the paragraph for the teacher to ask the students. Uh, and that's, how do repentance, baptism, and confirmation, and then listen to this phrase, help us be born again? So we're going to talk about, perhaps, if, if we have time, um, just our evangelical credo-Christian understanding of what it means to be born again yeah. and how that differs from this idea that, you know, they really talk about being born again as a process that happens by these different sacraments and, and things we do. So. Yeah, in the sentence right below that, some people believe that a person can't really change. Yeah, so it's all turned into this, yeah. here's how you Everybody change. has within yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you, are, you, you basically cause yourself to become born again, mm-hmm. according to the understanding here, by the works that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, whew, uh, we have a very, very different understanding of that uh, from a credo Christian perspective. Okay, and then the next uh, passage is covering John, or the next section covers John 4, and it's verses 5 to 34, and that is Jesus having the conversation with the woman at the well. And uh, the subtitle there is Jesus Christ offers us living water and the meat of doing God's work. Okay, so that's the teaching there. Uh, Jesus Christ is offering us living water and the meat of doing God's work. So even there, whatever Jesus is offering it is really us being able to do a certain work of some kind. Um, and then a couple of uh, significant uh, quotes that are given in the additional resources. They are teaching, here's what it means to be born again. One quote is from Elder David A. Bedner, And he says, conversion is mighty, not minor, a spiritual rebirth and fundamental change of what we feel and desire, what we think and do, and what we are. Indeed, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ entails a fundamental and permanent change in our very nature made possible through our reliance upon the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we continue to follow the Master, we choose, we choose to be changed. And then he says, to be spiritually reborn. I hope you can hear the the contradictions even within that very line. You know, like at first it is kind of articulating a, a pretty good understanding of what rebirth or the new birth is, which is that we're changed by the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. Like it's almost, it's almost a sense of you're changed by realizing what Jesus has done for you. Like this is a, this is what is doing this. But then it's like, we choose to be changed, to be spiritually reborn. We choose to be spiritually reborn um, versus it being something that God is doing to us and for us. So there's kind of this back and forth, uh, contradictory way of thinking even within that line. And then the other quote that is given is uh, is by, by Dallin Oaks. And I'll just read the last line there. It says, Nevertheless, in order to realize the intended blessing of this born-again status, we must keep our covenants and endure to the end. So, again, you kind of have what's almost articulated as an a understanding of this new birth that happens, but then it's like, well, but you only get it, you know, if you endure and keep covenants and do what you need to do. Um, so I, I just think that language is so fascinating in order to realize. So we, we have to realize, you know, it's up to us to make sure these things are realized in our lives. 
in order to realize the intended blessing of this born-again status, we must still keep our covenants and endure to the end, right? So that language implies that we've got to bring these things into being by our works that we're doing, right? Yep. I mean, pretty much. So, okay, so that's what we have in the uh, in the curriculum. Um, one uh, point that we're going to focus on a little bit as well, just so that you have a heads up of where we're going, John four twenty four, and this is actually highlighted in the um, individual and family manual, but not in the Sunday school curriculum. But uh, John four twenty four, let me just read that out of the English Standard Version. Says God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so that is a text that credo Christians will often point to to help us understand and rightly um, articulate the truth of who God is. And uh, in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum, it has the question, is God a spirit? Well, that's already a difference because the text doesn't say a spirit. It says God is spirit. Uh, But then it says, some may be confused by Jesus' statement that God is a spirit. The Joseph Smith translation of this verse provides an important clarification And this is what the Joseph Smith translation says. For unto such hath God promised his spirit. And it says, modern revelation also teaches teaches that God has a body of flesh and bones. See Doctrine and Covenants 130, 22 to 23, and also Genesis 5, 1 to 3, and Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Okay. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? With the wedding at Cana. Yes. Um, so, as I already mentioned, this is a passage that has been used by LDS scholars and and all sorts of all the way up the chain of command um, to argue that Jesus is married. And so, scholar, I just want you to kind of just want to kick it over to you and let you share with us what the uh, teaching that has been taught in the LDS church and in Mormonism as a whole and must be why why this must be taught within their way of thinking. If you could just help us out with that, that would be fantastic. For sure. And, I mean, some of this is drawing on previous work, which is nice. Um, So even in what we read a few episodes ago, in the Achieving a Celestial Marriage Manual, celestial marriage, which is being married in the LDS temple under the priesthood authority, as they assert, was restored um, through the prophet Joseph Smith. And of course, in early Mormonism, that included polygamy. Um, I think it still does. And for those who say, no, it doesn't, is Dallin H. Oaks and Russell M. Nelson sealed to more than one woman. Mm-hmm. If Get back to me on that and then tell me you don't believe it. Um, yeah. So I think it's still there. But the point is, is marriage is a necessary part of exaltation, right into the higher levels of celestial glory in their view. So how can you have a Jesus that isn't married, right? right? If Heavenly Father became a Heavenly Father by virtue in part of his marriages, how could Jesus not? And so in, in the early Mormon, I mean, I, I could go through tons of quotes, but I've learned my lesson. I've brought one good one. Yeah, uh, There's plenty I could go into, but just to throw some things out. I, I will yeah. say too, yes. if I if I could just make a note that in, in many conversations when we are discussing with LDS people, even about the various levels of heaven, um, when you ask an LDS person a question of, well, since 
since Jesus wasn't married, uh, does that mean he's not going to be in exaltation? Um, I've never gotten an honest, like straight answer on that. You know, I've never, I've never had someone respond. Well, Jesus was married, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't know if you know why, why that is. Is this, That's is a good this question. maybe not a real common teaching or is this something that every LDS person, no, Jesus was married and he's in exaltation. Yeah. Um, not, not anymore. Um, yeah. I think it was more clear in the early days and now they just don't say it, but they don't deny it either. Okay. And so yeah. it's one of these things where you got to keep in mind in, in Mormon culture from the beginning, there are shelf doctrines and quotations, sacred things that you don't talk about. It's very much a culture of secrecy. So there may have been people that just straight up lied for the Lord to you. And lying for the Lord is a term meaning they have a right to hide certain truths from you because you're not ready on your path of progression. So it's a spiritual contest in that sense, in my view. Yeah. Um, now, some may just not think about it, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've asked, um, okay, you need a body to become God. Okay, to become a God. Okay, does the Holy Ghost have a body? And they've never even thought of it. How do you have a member of your Godhead that doesn't have a body? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, now there's a fringe view that the Holy Ghost was Joseph Smith, but anyway. Um, so that's, you know, that was always a fringe view, but you can see what they're trying to answer, right? Well, with this marriage point, I think a lot of them do get into Da Vinci Code stuff for this reason. And they think, because, I mean, what's that uh, silly book? Is it Holy Blood, Holy Grail, or whatever that mm-hmm. was supposedly part of the, the quote-unquote research for Dan Brown, uh, the novel writer, um, that also claimed Cana was his wedding, right? But yeah. you got to keep in mind, a lot of them think he also had to have kids because marriage isn't enough. They'll tell you in the LDS temple, at least they used to, that even just getting married isn't enough. You have to have kids as well. So um, now they'll make exceptions for certain people that can't or whatever. Yeah. And they'll say in the next life or in the next, whatever. Or is, by way of adoption. Sure, that you'll you'll have kids. Yeah. Um, which, but they are a necessary part of it. So I think a lot of them not only think that Jesus was married, of course, in the early church, there's quotes from, you know, leaders that think Jesus Christ was even a polygamist. In fact, I have a quote we'll get to there on the cross that they think uh, one was taught. And once again, these are in the journal discourse. These are conference talks, a lot of them. Devotionals, conference talks, where the prophets and apostles with authority over the church are teaching the doctrine of the church. These aren't just fringe journal quotes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, taught that, for example, Jesus was crucified for polygamy, for example, yeah. which is incredibly... Uh, Amazing to think that was ever taught. Well, you can see, though, the the theology behind it, that perhaps even he had kids, and perhaps those kids were hidden. Um, And um, some will even argue uh, that Joseph Smith was a descendant of Jesus. Um, There's there's a book out there called Mormonism's Sacred Bloodline uh, by a guy who, um, in fact, was involved in the Springville Art Museum which I like the Springville Art Museum, just for the record. But anyway, he was a guy involved there for a long time who wrote that things, things like Mary's from England, and that's why she's white in the Book of Mormon. Uh, keep in mind, Joseph Smith claimed Jesus is a white man, white man with blue eyes. And you can see that even in the art in this manual, oh, yeah. right? They won't violate that. Event, you know, in 100 years, the LDS leaders will blame all the artists for it, but there's a reason they actually think and once again, this is not metaphorically, literally a white man. Yeah. And Heavenly Father is literally a white man because the, the complexion is the same and all that. So how do you deal with that? Um, so 
And as a man, what do you do? You get married. So um, let me read just one quote before I, I have just a bullet point list to get rid of some of the silliness. Um, and then more broadly, the theological point, I think are a little more interesting, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so this is Orson Hyde. And in a conference talk, or, or actually, I'm not sure if this is a conference talk. It's a sermon by President Orson Hyde delivered in Great Salt Lake City. Man, the head of woman, kingdom of God, the seed of Christ. You hear that, right? The seed of Christ, polygamy, society in Utah. And this is in the Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, and starting on page 259. And Orson Hyde, Orson Pratt, there's a lot of interesting history. I'll just throw this out there. There's a book. Um, that documents the debates between Orson Pratt and um, Brigham Young. And actually, some of those debates led to, interestingly enough, issues of authority between them. Hmm. So there's a lot of debate over whether Orson Pratt was actually excommunicated or not, over Joseph Smith trying to send him on a mission and trying to, uh, you know, uh, consummate a marriage with his wife. He would send people on missions and then try to marry them, their wives. Yeah. And, and yes, he did consummate them, um, even if we don't have evidence for all of them. Anyway, there was literally a general conference where the order of apostles was changed by Brigham Young. Mm-hmm. And so for those that argue for this line of priesthood authority, this is a big issue. Yeah. But the book is called Conflict in the Quorum. I recommend for people who want to get into the Orson Pratt, uh, Brigham Young mm-hmm. debates, the first chapter will document... Joseph Smith's infidelity, adultery, um, I mean, awful stuff, Um, including to some of these men, apostles' wives. Um, Mm. Just so sad. I I feel actually really bad for some of them. Yeah. Um, Joseph Smith was quite the monster. It's interesting. um, I I hear Bill Clinton wasn't very popular here in the 90s, but their prophet was worse. At least Bill Clinton didn't do it in the name of Jesus. Mm. All right. Here is Orson Hyde's quote. It will be borne in mind that once, on, that once on a time there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And on a careful reading of that transaction, it will be discovered that no less a person than Jesus Christ was married on that occasion. So pretty clear, you know. Yeah. Um, he, if he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and the other Mary, also whom Jesus loved, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. Um, he goes on. Let me just jump ahead. Was it God's commandment to man? In the beginning to multiply and replenish the earth? Um, Did Jesus consider it necessary to fulfill every righteous command or requirement of his father? He even um, says, um, quoting the Old Testament, he shall see his seed and prolong his days. Um, And then skipping ahead, if God be not our father, grandfather, or great-grandfather, or some kind of a father in reality, indeed, and in truth, why are we taught to say our father who art in heaven? How much soever of holy horror this doctrine may excite in persons not impregnated with the blood of Christ. Fascinating. Mm. And whose minds are consequently dark and benighted, it may excite still more when they are told that if none of the natural blood of Christ flows in their veins, they are not the chosen or elect of God. Mormonism has a form of election Mm. based on the natural descendant of Jesus. According to this. There you go. Um, object not, therefore, too strongly against the marriage of Christ, but remember that in the last days, secret and hidden things must come to light. Ooh, there it is. And that your life also, which is the blood, is hid with Christ in God. All right. So mm-hmm. now um, it's interesting. The interpreter, the, the newer one, it, Martin Tanner uh, starts off and just says, 
yeah, a lot of early leaders taught it, but yeah, I don't think it works and just moves on. Um, that's interesting. I, yeah. I, I would just say, why have prophets and apostles if it doesn't matter what they taught? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do think Tanner's right to reject it. Um, if I may, just really quick, Brandon, just go through. If you have open, this, this will be very useful if you just have John 2 open. And I got six bullet points just really quick to get sure. rid of this idea that Orson Hyde is um, tricking people into thinking. Um, and as well as Dan Brown and Holy Blood, Holy Grail, all this nonsense. Yep. Um, so in verse 1, the wedding I came to John 2, verse 1, Jesus' mother is at the wedding. Why would you say that if it's Jesus's? Right? That's a superfluous detail. Verse 2, Jesus is invited. Why would he be invited to his own wedding? Um, host is not invited to his own wedding. In fact, we know from Matthew 22 and 25 that wedding banquets at this time were clearly held at either the bridegroom or his father. Um, look at verse 3. The they have no wine. The, the, the they is the wedding party, the bride and groom. Yep. Um, verse 4. What does this have to do with me? Well, <laughs> if you're the, I don't know, the bridegroom of this wedding, it has a lot to do with you. Yep. <laughs> Particularly in that culture. <laughs> exactly. Because it would have been shameful mm -hmm. to no end to run out of wine at a wedding. Exactly. Um, verses 9 and 10, the Toastmaster says to the bridegroom, right? And he makes comments. Notice he doesn't say this to Jesus, but he literally says this to the bridegroom. We just aren't told who the bridegroom is. And then in verse 12, this is the clincher. Jesus leaves the wedding and went off with his mother, brothers, disciples, but not his wife. <laughs> That's right. In a culture that is very big on husband duties. In fact, we even see that in the teachings of Jesus. So I, I think um, that even just those six bullet points, if you have that in mind, if anyone tells you this, now you know. Just read the text carefully. Yeah. It, it debunk, debunks the claim, just the plain reading of the text. Yep. That's good. That's good. Yeah, and, the, and, and then obviously... You know, and I don't. Do you have anything else you want to cover on any of the early history stuff before we start kind of talking about the not right this, interpretation of this? Not this week. Yeah. So um, there is a significance that is being pointed toward, I believe, uh, by John toward Jesus and what his role is in the church. Um, but there's not a, I guess, not not what his role is in the church, but his role is with the church <laughs> mm -hmm. toward, um, the, toward the church, toward the church. but mm -hmm. um, there's not this sense in which uh, John is trying to communicate in any regard that this is Jesus wedding. I mean, that's just not even necessary within Christian theology to hold to that because what is actually taught and revealed, especially clearly in the new Testament is that Jesus's role uh, in terms of being a bridegroom, is not to be married to one particular human or even a few particular women who are on the earth, but that he is the bridegroom of the church, which is consistently called his bride. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what is being pointed toward in the wedding at Cana is this inauguration of the new covenant that Jesus is, uh, that, that he is bringing in. Uh, at the beginning of his ministry, showing this is this is what he has come to do is to fulfill this role, and so there would be a difference in theologically how we would point to Jesus and marriage 
versus what you see being developed within the LDS church, you know, because we would point to him as having been single for his whole life, but he has, he has a bride. His bride is the church. Yep. And so what we see being developed in the New Testament, even as Jesus is questioned, uh, trying to be tricked by, you know, these, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they say, you know, who, who will this, I can't remember where the exact reference is. You, you have, yes. but, uh, I think it's Matthew, or sorry, Matthew 22. Yeah, so Jesus is, you know, having this conversation with, uh, with all these, all these uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law and things of that nature, and they're trying to trick him with this question. And it says, it's Matthew 22, 23, and following the same day Sadducees came to him, uh, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So you see the picture that's being portrayed as... Uh, you know, these Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead are trying to put this problem to Jesus of like, oh, if you say there's going to be resurrection from the dead, well, what do you do in this situation where this, you know, person had seven people that they were married to? Who are they going to be married to in the next life? Who are they going to be married to in heaven? And uh, Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead... You have not read what is said, what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Uh, he is not God. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But very clear and plain teaching. There's not going to be marriage. People aren't going to be given in marriage or anything of that nature in the resurrection. And the significance of that theologically is the purpose of marriage is really a sort of placeholder for this greater reality that's going on that we see Paul teach about in Ephesians chapter 5. And there he gives us the real spiritual significance and meaning of, of marriage. Uh, when he says, wives, this is Ephesians 5, 22 and following, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing uh, of water with the word, so that you might present the church, so that he might present himself to the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it continues to go on. And so the significance of Jesus, you know, in marriage theologically is that Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is ultimately his bride, which culminates on the last day in Revelation. Um, with the wedding supper of the Lamb, where the church is presented to Jesus without spot or blemish as his perfect bride, and he is the perfect bridegroom. And so there is a lot of significant wedding imagery, and Jesus is given a very particular picture you know, of, of his role in that as the, as the bridegroom, but it's not what we see being articulated in LDS teaching. No, where it's very, look at it, it's like, no distinction between God and man. No, 
Well, it's a very individualistic. Marriage is something you need to accomplish with someone else or someone else. <laughs> it's several. Um, to exalt yourselves, learn to become gods yourselves. Joseph Smith taught in the King Follett Discourse. Yeah, and and this is this is key though. If you okay, take a step back and look at the wedding imagery. I think there's something going on even between the Gospels that is so useful. Mm-hmm. We saw in in Matthew one and in Luke one this idea of betrothal to Mary, right? And uh, even the interpreter saw some of the significance that in this culture, betrothal was kind of a marriage already. Yeah, um, It wasn't consummated yet, yep. but it was, you had to get a bill of divorce to end it. So what would happen? You would commit, you'd covenant to each other, and then the groom would prepare a place Right. Sometimes it was with his parents. To be clear, she would move in with him and his parents. But say they're a little more wealthy or a little more well-to-do, they could get their own place. They had a year or so, let's say, um, to prepare a place. And then the wedding banquet would be when the groom returns to pick up the bride and take them to the place they prepare. And I think there is something that John is doing here because think of this, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Right, we are waiting for the consummation of the marriage. Right, yep. that already is a betrothal, and that's that's what Christians are doing is waiting. Whereas, look at how the the Mormon emphasis is. First off, their marriage is tied to their priesthood authority that they think was lost and had to be restored. Though the historical issues with those restoration stories are notorious, even look in Rough Stone Rolling, go to the Deseret Book, buy Rough Stone Rolling, look at the footnotes, very problematic. But they had claimed this, and then they claim it for their temple. Mm-hmm. And this is what's interesting, is in this same chapter, um, the temple we associate with Jesus' body, by which we are living stones, to quote Peter. Mm-hmm. But listen to how someone on the interpreter uh, talked about this. This is the passage that establishes, this is about nine minutes, 28 seconds into the episode. This is the passage that establishes the clear symbolism between the temple and his body. And from an LDS perspective, that helps us appreciate the fact that everything in the temple, especially our latter-day temples, points us to Jesus Christ in every single function. That is unbelievable when literally within the same lesson, we're going to hear about a time, Jesus says, when these temples made with hands will be irrelevant. Yeah. And and God's people will worship him in spirit and truth. And that connects to the marriage passage you just read, right? In Matthew 22. This is a challenge I have for LDS. And I know I'm pretty hard hitting in this episode already so far, but deep breaths. Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. Literally the point of the temple marriage is so that it will last beyond this world and this life. Mm-hmm. Do you know better than Jesus? (laughs) Do you know better than Jesus? The reason we only marry for time, and they will mock this. I've seen this even in family weddings. They'll mock the fact that, yeah, Christians, they know they don't have authority to seal for time and eternity. And I would just say, neither do you. You just imagine you do. But part of that is because when our Lord Lord speaks in Matthew 22, we listen. We don't claim an authority we don't have. And Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. And the fact that you do that literally in a temple, the temple built with hands, that's denying the very temple Jesus says, literally in this section, John 2 through through 4, 2 through 4, 
is it's one of these things where it's so obvious you'd think they would respond more directly to it, but they mm-hmm. don't. I mean, uh, um, in the episode today, the interpreter, she's like, well, Jesus clearly recognizes the symbolism. Clearly, rec- he's the one who taught it. Yeah. <laughs> there's, always, there's always like this, yeah, Jesus, you know, he, he was catching on to what Paul taught. It's like, he taught it. Yeah. What are you talking about? We're learning it from him. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's good. Yeah, and um, again, even just thinking about what's being revealed here, John is really reaching into a lot of rich Old Testament teaching, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to be the Savior of the world, the fulfillment of all the things that were being talked about in the law and in the prophets. And uh, you've got you got several of the prophets that use the sort of language that represented God, Yahweh, as a husband to the people of Israel. To Israel. That's right. And so Yahweh's the, the bridegroom in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. So the fulfillment of that is the coming of Jesus. And if you're wondering, well, is that really what John was getting at? Yes, it was, because look just a chapter later in John chapter 3, which was not talked about in any of the curriculum that I saw anyways. But in that section, a bunch of the John the Baptist disciples were getting offended, seeing that a bunch of people were going over to be baptized by Jesus, and they're like, well, what about, what was going on here? And so they say they say to John the Baptist, they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across, he, it says, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Okay, so this is like the classic, you know, sometimes evangelical churches start to really battle battle it out with one another. Why are all the people going over there, not over here, right? This is the sort of thing that's going on. Everybody's going over to that guy that you just baptized. You know, are, are you offended by that? That's, that doesn't look so good. And, and then John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear... You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, now listen to this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So right there you see John is clearly picking up on the significance by drawing out these things that even John the Baptist said, John the Apostle is picking up on the significance of the Old Testament fulfillment of this bridegroom that has come to to save a people unto himself, to make a, a bride that is without blemish or spot. And that bridegroom is Jesus himself. And so you want to talk about you know Jesus and being married and all that sort of stuff. Jesus doesn't need to be married to some physical woman. He came to be the bridegroom to his church. And uh, and so marriage is given ultimately as a gift to us to um, to have an image of how Jesus loves the church. And uh, that's its ultimate purpose, is not for our self-fulfillment, but ultimately even marriage is to point to the glory of Christ and what he does for his church. Right, right. We, it's not um, Jesus is participating in this eternal program of exaltation. It's our marriages, insofar as they are loyal to God, rooted in his word and good, point us to God, the triune God. That's right. Right. It, it, we are the image and likeness of God. He's not a mirror image of us. And that goes for marriage. Right. And I mean, I just think, like, compare this. So David Ridges says this. Um, this is actually particularly on the point of Peter's mother in law. Mm-hmm. 
He says, living worthily of exaltation in a family unit forever is the highest form of dedication to God. Now, with a quote like that, of course, in the context of the Mormon system, um, it's it's tough to grapple with it because we're not saying family's bad, obviously. Yeah. I mean, family is good, but it is something that I think is challenging to the Mormon if we don't overreact to the enforced celibacy for the priesthood of Rome, which, by the way, isn't even true of the East. Eastern Orthodox priests can marry. But in its supererogation, right, um, this was even pointed out in the medieval period when this was being debated, that they're saying this is supererogation. The apostles were married. Um, why do we, we don't think ourselves more righteous than the apostles. Well, we can overreact to that and then ha- struggle with, you know, um, the eunuch passage in Matthew 19 yeah. with First um, Corinthians 7, right? Um, and not realize that there are times when we, needed, we need single-minded devotion to God. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus is clearly one of those times. Yeah. Um, and Paul was clearly one of those times. Um, and in First Corinthians 9, by the way, when he lists the, you know, people that are married, he even mentions Jesus's brothers being married. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mention Jesus. Yeah. If he knew J- Jesus was married, why not include him in the list in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, where it says, do, do we not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? So, you know, here Paul certainly would have mentioned the example of Jesus being married had it not been so. However, we can't overreact to Rome and defend marriage as good. We cannot overreact to Mormonism and act as if celibate singleness is the only option. Of course, marriage is good. Male, female, have kids. Like, that's good. But celibate singleness, single-minded devotion is a Christian option. And I think that's a way of challenging the idolatry of the family that we see in Mormonism. That's good. Yeah, and just to remember that the purpose of marriage ultimately is not the fulfillment of man. The purpose of marriage is to point to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And even a single person who is devoted to the Lord is participating in marriage in the sense of being, being part of the bride of Christ, you know? And and I do think that that is a deeper spiritual fulfillment of what's going on here. Uh, When you talk about, well, do you have to be married uh, in order to fulfill righteousness or even to be obedient to the command to, uh, to, you know, take, take a wife or be fruitful and multiply or any of that. There's, there's a spiritual fulfillment that happens um, in Jesus that uh, we see as being far more important than the physical act of marriage. And, and a physical act of marriage even is only glorifying to God insofar as it is reflecting the more important spiritual reality of Christ in the church in the way that the husband and wife are loving and caring for one another. Um, it's supposed to always be reflecting glory back up to God, not as a purpose towards our own ultimate glory one day or our own, you know, exaltation. Yes. And um, a lot of, a lot of people, in fact, maybe even some listening will stay in the LDS church, even if they don't believe it because of family. Let me read Matthew 10, 34 through 39 really quick. Yeah. Keep in mind, this is the same Bible that talks about God creating male and female. Marriage is good. Have kids. All that being said, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, the ultimate loyalty for the bride right, is Jesus. And that trumps biological um, connection. Yeah. Now, people groups, we, I, I mean, we believe we are born to certain families for a reason. Um, Paul mourns his people, his Jewish people, the, the unbelieving Jews. Um, they don't believe in Christ as the Messiah. Yeah. We, we, there's a reason for these things, but we cannot make them an idol. Yep. Like we, we often will see heinous sins and say, yeah, that's a problem. But what about even good things God created? Those can be a problem if they ever are prioritized above first and foremost, loyalty to Jesus alone. And I think that would mean being part of his church, lowercase c, right? Yeah. And a faithful church worshiping with his people. Yeah. So if you're staying in the LDS church just for family, I think this is very relevant. Yeah, and, and another point on that, just out of the wedding at Cana, that we see, you know, the, the LDS church may elevate the relationship of marriage really highly, but one other way that we see the same truth that you just now taught represented in Jesus's interactions with other people is the way that he interacts with his mother. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the first places that we see Jesus even being a little bit sharp towards his mother. Mm -hmm. And D.A. Carson points out in his commentary on the Gospel of John that, uh, that Jesus is really, in a subtle way, he's rebuking his mother. And there is a change that is occurring in his relationship with his mother where um, she needs to realize that she can't come to him in the same way that any other mother can come to their earthly son, but that she actually is going to be need to be dependent upon him in the same way that all the rest of creation is going to need to be dependent upon him because he is not like every boy that's been born into this earth. Um, you know, he is distinct. And so there is this ongoing uh, r relational uh, dissonance almost. I don't know if that's the right word, but there there is kind of a, this this disconnect that's occurring in how Jesus speaks about his mother. He's often deflects, you know, the crowd's talking about, blesses the mother of your womb, and he, he deflects the attention from his mother, and he's trying to always put it back onto himself because he is the only way to be saved, and he is the only one who is worthy of glory and honor and worship. And so... Um, so even how he relates to his mother. Now, that doesn't mean that he ditches her. Like one of no. the beautiful things is when he's hanging on the cross, you know, he is making sure that the disciple that he loves is going to take care of his mother. And so he's already reaching out saying, make sure you, she probably was a widow at the time already. And he's making sure that she's taken care of. So it's not like he's neglecting her or no. not honoring her or anything like that. It's just that he is supreme. You know, he, yeah. he is God. And so his mother must worship him in the same way that he is calling all the rest of creation to worship him too. Absolutely. Mark 3, I think, makes this point super well. I won't read the thing, but if you read Mark 3, 
he he even says, who, are, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Right? Those who do the will of God. And of course, in the context, the will of God are being around him and listening to his teaching. And I think that's something to also see is Jesus's mission is unique in the history of the world and of all worlds, not just this one. Yeah. Um, and it, it could actually be reckless to be married at times. If you cannot be there and be a good husband and provide and all those things, mm-hmm. it can actually be irresponsible. Yeah. So once again, yeah, I think that's a great example with his mother. Yeah. You know, he is a good son his that's whole right. life. Yep. But you know what? His true family is the eschatological kingdom. Now we believe that Mary is part of the eschatological kingdom. Yeah, and in right. fact, is a great example at many points in the scriptures. But I think Mark three and Mark six, one of the things that just screams at you when you read through Mark yeah. is that yes, the family's good. In fact, he's more strict on divorce than even a lot of the Pharisees. Yeah. Um, that being said, the true loyalty is to God alone and God alone as in Christ. And to reject that, even for family, is idolatry. That's good. Well, we, let's see, we got, we got a few more minutes here. So uh, maybe let's turn, if there's one other thing we need to focus on here, let's turn to John 4, 24. And uh, of course, that is the passage that very clearly articulates that uh, God is spirit, and, the, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And as I read, the LDS Individual and Family, family Manual says, some may be confused by Jesus' statement that God is a spirit. Um, the Joseph Smith translation gives clarity on this. Let's just dive into that a little Let's bit, Skylar, and, and talk some about what the LDS people teach regarding the nature of God and how that would be... a important distinction for us with critical Christianity. Yeah, and we've made this point a few times, but it bears repeating almost every time because this is so different. Um, Jesus is unique in that he is truly God and truly man. Okay, and and we recognize the creator-creation distinction if you read Chalcedon, the definition of Chalcedon, which might be a creed we can read sometime. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I think it's one of the best. Yep. Um, it honors that distinction while never dividing the person of Jesus. And, um, but you got to keep in mind that creator creation distinction is completely gone. Um, we can focus a lot on the polytheism that's clearly there, right? If they're three separate beings and persons, they have at least three gods to not even include their wives. And with Jesus, if, and of course, according to early Mormons, several wives, um, yeah. who are goddesses. And of course, heavenly mother, we haven't brought up, but at some point we can. Yeah. Um, so there is no transcendence in Mormonism mm-hmm. at all. So whereas, you know, Christians at Nicaea, right, they're debating, okay, there's a creator-creation distinction, a distinction between a God who's eternally existent and finite creatures, man. What side of the line is Jesus on? Yeah. Okay. That line isn't there yep. in Mormonism. And so they will say that God has a body of flesh and bones, Um not blood, to, which I think is a misreading of First Corinthians 15. Yeah. Um, and therefore the son is as well. And that they are, they are their body in the same way you and I are. They would just say that body is exalted and therefore um, greater in quality. Um, I, sh- I guess I should say greater in quantity in yeah. a sense, right, of these attributes. Um, whereas, you know, we see a distinction 
um, between God and man. And that's why we wrestle with how to articulate the, the limits of the incarnation. Yeah. So when an LDS curriculum says, is God a spirit? And they say some may be confused by Jesus' statement that God is a spirit. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what it says. But it doesn't even say God is a spirit. It says God is spirit, right? Mm-hmm. So um, let's just let's just be clear there. But let's let's talk. You know, even just a little more of what we mean when we say that as uh, credo Christians, and uh, that is that God is not to be understood as like us. He is different than us in his very essence, in his nature. And uh, the this would go along with what theologians would call his incommunicable attributes, right? Those attributes that are not attributes that can be defined in human terms. And so, um, you know, one of the interesting things that LDS people will do is they'll take on these languages like God is flesh and bone and they'll maybe point to a scripture where they see that and use that as an argument. But then when you see God as spirit, they just want to throw it out, you know, in the fastest and easiest way that they can. Uh, because what do you do with that? You know, in a theological system where you are so set on God being like man, what do you do when you come across a scripture that says, well, God is a, uh, God is spirit? Um, so I, how, I mean, how do they kind of deal with that from the things that you've read and understood? Yeah, well, um, let me quote Gordon B. Hinckley, who was a president prophet of the church. Um, and I'll, I'll quickly quote it. You yeah. can, we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, it's a talk, July 2006, in these three, I believe. And um, he talks about being in Hyde Park, London, and he said a heckler interrupted to say, why don't you stay with the doctrine of the Bible, which says in, God, in John, God is a spirit. He said, I opened my Bible to the verse, and he's, he quotes it as, God is a spirit. Um, he said, I said, quote, of course God is a spirit, and so are you in the combination of spirit and body that makes you a living being, and so am I. See, so yeah, like, you know how Jesus is divine, and so are you. Yeah. Jesus is a man, and so are you. We're all the God men. You know? uh, there's no sense. He later on says, Jesus' declaration that God is a spirit no more denies that he has a body than does the statement that I am a spirit while also having a body. I do not equate my body with his in its refinement, see that, in its capacity, in its beauty and radiance. His is eternal, mine is mortal. So, once again, it's not a qualitative distinction. It's a quantitative distinction. He's just a greater Superman. Yeah. And and so they, I mean, what a dodge, right? But you, another thing that might be in mind that he doesn't mention is in the Doctrine and Covenants, even spirit is material. That's it's right. just a more fine form of material. Yeah. So when you deal with Mormonism, I mean, it is ultimately a materialistic yeah. religion. They yeah. don't, spirit is defined as a type of matter yep. that... Because our matter is not as pure, our eyes cannot discern the more spiritual matter. But one day our eyes will be able to discern the more pure spiritual matter. But the the idea is there really is nothing that is truly spiritual in the sense of invisible and unseen. (laughs) Everything that we can't see is just because our eyes aren't good enough yet. Yep, And, (laughs) and miracles as well. They're just higher... Laws. Yeah. Um, Everything is atoms. Yes. You know, like everything Mm -hmm. can be reduced to that. It's just some are finer and purer than others. Yep. 
yeah. that's really leaned into by Talmadge, but I think the best example is John A. Woodsow's Irrational Theology. But just so they hear it themselves, DNC 131.7 says, There is no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter. Quote, dot, dot, dot. We shall see that it is all matter. So, once again, this is um, materialism. Yeah. Ultimately. Yep. So, let me just ask this to get the question here because this is one of the rebuttals that we'll often hear from LDS people. Well, what do you do with all the ways that God is described in the Bible that use human characteristics to describe him? You know, he's described as having flesh and bones. He's described as having hands and eyes and and feet and all these different things. So, you know, what do do you do with that? Because clearly the Bible likes to articulate that God is in this human form. Um, I got a lot I could go to there, but Absolute, go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, we need to cover this more in depth. Um, we, we think of language about God as analogical, mm-hmm. right? So if, if language that's univocal, um, we would mean it that in every aspect um, in human terms. So like what Orson Hyde did, right? Um, he, when he says, why else would you say a father? He means that literally. Whereas for us, we think it an incredible privilege in Christ alone to pray that. That's not normal. Yeah. And But notice it says, Father who is in heaven. Yep. So it's like, oh, Father, like a good Father, but in heaven. So not like a good Father. That That's analogical where there's a point of comparison that is true. God is condescending into finite human language to communicate true things about himself. But if you take these words too far... You can distort, yeah, the true image and of God. What you said is what you just said is so important. And and again, the phrase that we keep using is creator, creation, distinction. Yes, the the God of the Bible is a God that is incomprehensible. You know, mm-hmm. He's not a God that we can fathom with finite human minds. Nope. And so there is a distinction that is being made all throughout the Bible that God is not. He's not like his creation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's imminent in his creation. He is mm-hmm. present in his creation. but And his creation is a faint reflection of his glory. Yes. But it does not capture the essence of all of who he is Mm-mm. in his glory. Not at all. It's, it's a dim reflection. In the beginning, right? God, even before creation happens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, in Numbers 23, I'm not a man that I should repent. Yep. Um, in Psalm 50, you thought I was like you. That's right. If I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you, right? It, it, if you reduce God to an image, yep, to an impression, to an experience, this right. is just textbook examples of idolatry yeah. according to the Bible. Now, the important word that you use there is if we reduce God to a image. Mm-hmm. And what's significant about that is, as you mentioned, that God condescends to human language. Mm-hmm. Our God is a God who who wants to communicate to his creation who he is. He wants yes. us to have a knowledge of him. But as finite creatures, we cannot grasp... There's not, there's not a heavenly language that we know. Our language is limited and... and the word we keep using is finite, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an it's not an infinite language. It is a language of of humans. It's a language even used by fallen humans, and uh, and so, you know, to comprehend who God is, we would need something far greater than what we we can possess or behold. 
um, because of our natural limitations. But God, who wants to make himself known, condescends into human language and uses it, uses these different, uh, you know, the big word is anthropomorphisms. He uses these different ways of communicating who he is through human language that we can understand. And so when you talk about images of God, God actually does portray himself in all sorts of images in the Bible, but that is not just limited to flesh and bones. And that's where the LDS way of thinking needs to be challenged, because if you want to just, you know, cherry pick one of the images that God uses to reveal a bit of who he is um, in the Bible— why, why wouldn't you embrace all of the other ones? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do you hold on to this flesh and bones idea rather than the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar of fire or mm-hmm. rather than the cloud or rather than the burning bush? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why is it that you're going to hone in on, on flesh and bone versus any of the other myriads of examples that are given uh, about him right. and how to kind of describe in a very faint and imperfect way who, who he is. Yeah. And by imperfect, I, I don't mean the, Word of God is imperfect. I mean, our finite human language yeah. is not able to fully grasp and comprehend who he is through it. Yeah, I think John Calvin said it well when he said, often in the Bible, God is cooing, like what parents do to little kids. Mm-hmm. He's cooing. Um, and Augustine, after, I and mean, it's an enormous book on the Trinity. It's one of the great books on the Trinity in, in Christian history. He says at the very end, I have said this in order to say something, but... He has this great line, I can't recall exactly, to say, and yet I feel like I can't say anything at all. Yeah. Right? We are driven to worship this God because we're not expecting to rationally comprehend him, let alone see him as a literal parallel just further progressed. Yep. I mean, in Malachi 3, I do not change. James 1.17, he gives good gifts, but there's no shade or turning in him. One more, Acts 14, I think is such a key one. Remember, they confuse Paul for Hermes after a miracle he performs, and they come to to worship him as if Hermes has come down, and he says, men, I am of a like nature and passion as you. Yep. And this is post-incarnation. This is after Jesus has come in the flesh. He says, you, you, I, I'm of a like nature and passion as you. You need to worship the living God in contrast to that, the living God who is not. And... So, yeah, I mean, even just read Isaiah, right? You get this contrast. There's this promised seed, this promised baby who's the eternal God. But this same God will call us grasshoppers, that he names all the stars. Nothing can capture him in his fullness that that is created. He he created light. It's not just that he is light. He created light. He's beyond anything our senses can capture. And if it weren't for him revealing himself in the word of God, yep. we would have no hope. Yeah. So we have all sorts of images that help us grasp just very faintly who he is. But the point is not to apprehend any single one of them and worship that as God. To do that would be to worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's the Romans 1 idolatry. It is. And so that's the danger that we want to avoid, and that is exactly the mistake that uh, the LDS faith makes, is they create a single image of God in flesh and bones, and they say that this is who God is, and they worship him as such. Uh, but the Bible manifests all sorts of ways of, I mean, he's a rock. Yeah. You know, he's a lion mm-hmm. of the tribe of Judah. He is. He, you know, like, is he an animal? Is he a rock? Is he a mm-hmm. tree? 
Is he, you know, all these different things? Well, no, like don't pick any single one of the whole point is you cannot identify who this God is by picking a single image in creation because he's not like the creation. Right. You know, but what's beautiful, and this is, this is a important point of revelation is that God, he, he does make himself, he makes his glory known through creation and mm-hmm. he he is present in it and so mm-hmm. we can comprehend somewhat of his glory by observing his creation and so there is a sense in which i can look up at the mountains and i can remember god is a rock yeah you know like that mountain testifies to his glory yeah is it is it him should i worship that mountain should i worship that rock no yeah. i should worship the god who created it and I should worship the God who that rock manifests how glorious he is. Yes. And even the dedication of the temple where God said he will be specially present covenantally. Solomon says what? We know not even the heaven of the heavens can contain you. This is a different God. You know, I, if, if you don't have that God, you're worshiping the wrong God. Yeah. And when you confess Jesus is God, if it's not that God, it's the wrong God. And if you're demanding to be able to comprehend God in order that you would worship him. You are settling for a God that is far less than he who is revealed in the Bible. And why would you want to worship a God you can comprehend anyways? Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's not a God. That's no. that's a man. It's an idol. Yeah. It's an idol, as Isaiah says consistently throughout. Yeah. We do need to wrap up, but you got another thing there. Yes, this, this includes, on, so. and this is key in line with John for God is spirit. This is maybe my favorite title of Jesus mm. in Colossians. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We can't see him, but you know what? He is made manifest in the flesh of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Yep. We believe the eternal God who created everything was in the womb of Mary for nine yep. months. Right. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. That's a status. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He upholds creation in every moment. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, of deity, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's good. Appreciate you joining us this week. Next week we will be looking at Matthew 5 and Luke 6. We hope you'll join us then.